0: Before we look into God's Word together this morning, just a brief pastoral observation on the events of this past week. As I have watched the events of the past week closely, as you have done, the words of Dickens came to mind it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times in that we witnessed an exchange and transfer of power in the most powerful nation on the face of the earth, based entirely upon ballots rather than bullets and that is an awesome, awesome miracle. I hope this past Friday you thanked our veterans who make those kinds of liberties possible and that we don't experience the bloodshed and the trauma that is common in so many places in the world when it comes time to replace power with power. So in that respect, it was the best of times. But as you know, in the aftermath, it has proven in many ways to be the worst of times. We have seen an incredible outpouring of hatred, division, fear, anger, accusations, suspicion, on and on and on. Now, I am not surprised when I see that response in the world. Those who have not found their hope, their security, their peace in Christ are going to tend to act out in bondage to fear and hatred and so on. But I have been disappointed by a few, and it's just been a few believers, who have taken to social media, calling out their fellow believers, implying that if you didn't vote the way they voted, you're the spawn of Satan and the cause of everything that's wrong in our society. I'm glad to report, though I don't check out Facebook very often, When I have checked it, I haven't seen many of you on there acting improperly, and I thank you for that. But I have seen others making incredible statements. And if you're ever tempted to join their ranks, let me remind you of one simple truth. You never accomplish the righteous agenda of God by violating the righteous commandments of God. You don't establish God's kingdom by violating all of the principles of God's kingdom. I have watched, in great disappointment, believers judging one another, calling one another out in the name of righteousness. And yet, as I follow their postings, here are just a few of the commandments they regularly and routinely break. Preserve the unity of the Spirit. Do not sow discord among the brethren, because God hates those who sow discord. Don't judge, and you judge when you impute motive and tell people why they do what they do. Make sure your speech always communicates grace. Never bear false witness. Never use the Lord's name in vain, and we do that when we attach His name to our politics. And do everything in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. When you violate those commandments, even if you consider your cause righteous, there's no way you're going to advance that righteous cause because holiness is not advanced by sin. So if you come across those kinds of things, I would suggest pray. Just pray and pray for the peace of God. And let me remind you that what we're doing here is needed now more than ever in this nation. This morning I was talking to a Caucasian gentleman who was partaking of breakfast. And he shared his testimony with me and he said, I don't attend here regularly. I come about once a month. And let me tell you why I come. I came here for the first time years ago and I quickly became aware I had been raised in bigotry and I was bigoted. And he said, I kept coming back because I didn't want to be that person. And as I came back, God began to show me my bigotry. And I repented of my bigotry. And now I just come here about once a month to be refreshed and to be reminded of our wonderful unity in Christ and of the perversity and silliness of bigotry. You see, that's God's agenda. And you don't accomplish that with hate speech. And you don't accomplish that by shouting at one another over walls of division. You do that by sitting in the same row, worshiping the same God, being in the same growth group, and building relationships where you discover your black brothers and sisters, your white brothers and sisters, your Hispanic brothers and sisters, your Asian brothers and sisters are your brothers and sisters... And when you, when you have black friends, you respond to the N-word differently. When you have white friends, you respond to cracker differently. Okay. Okay. This is how God builds unity. Not on Facebook with hate, but in the local church with the love of Christ. So let's stay the course and avoid the nonsense. One more thing, I'm on a roll. I was struck by the hypocrisy of so many young men I saw demonstrating on behalf of women. Now, demonstrating on behalf of women, fine. But studies have shown us that 90% of young men engage in porn as a recreational activity with no qualms about it whatsoever. And honey, I'm sorry, but if you view porn regularly, do not call yourself a friend of women. You are objectifying women. You are advancing an industry that hideously abuses women. And if you sleep with women casually when you have no intent of marrying them and making a commitment to them, don't tell me, that I'm a misogynist because I believe in Scripture, because I would tell you, you are a user in the light of Scripture. Do not be intimidated by hypocrisy, because there is so much hypocrisy in this culture, and it kills me when I see God's people shrinking back and getting apologetic in the face of such gross, obvious hypocrisy. The world likes to say we're hypocrites, And they don't acknowledge their own hypocrisy. Well, I could do about 20 of these, but I'm not going to. Let's get into the Word. Let's get into the Word. Last week I was saying that we are standing on the threshold of a great opportunity to glorify God through expanded influence. But this is a time to look back and remember our marching orders. And I shared that 33 years ago, God gave us a very simple marching order based on Matthew 14, 35. It says, when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word into all that surrounding district and brought to Him all who were sick. And 33 years ago, God said, if you'll look like Jesus, people will come and they'll bring the broken with them. And that has been and continues to be our simple strategy. Last week, I said that looking like Jesus isn't automatic for the people of God. We can often adopt moves or adapt looks, excuse me, that are contrary to Jesus. Sometimes the church looks like a culture club. Sometimes it looks like a museum of ancient history. Sometimes it looks like a monument to the past. Sometimes it looks like a biblical jihad. And sometimes it looks like a political party at prayer. And those are all bad looks for the church. So as I promised today in part two, I wanna look at what God taught me when I said, Lord, what does it mean to look like Jesus? Before we do that, let's pray. Father God, in these coming moments, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And, amen. and as we study God's Word together today, may the Lord be with you. with you. When I asked God what Jesus looked like, here's what he told me in no particular order. First, he told me Jesus was a friend of God. Sinners. Say friend of sinners. Friend of sinners. He was often seen in the company of alcoholics and hookers and adulterers and adulteresses and corrupt political appointees and corrupt business people and thieves. And that shocked the religious establishment. That angered the religious establishment. That threatened the religious establishment. And it was those people who labeled him a friend of sinners. It was not meant as a compliment. But their slander didn't refute Jesus' actions. It simply revealed their own sin. If they had been paying attention to God's previous announcements, they would have known that the Messiah came to rescue those who are lost, not to reject those that the world deems a lost cause. And Jesus befriended them and spent time with them so he could hear their stories and then tell them God's great redemptive story. You see, Jesus understood the difference between separation and isolation. God calls us to be separate from the world, but not isolated from people. Separation is biblical. Come out and be separate. That's a biblical command for God's people. But separation means we refuse the world's empty substitutes for God. We refuse to worship the world's idols. We refuse to embrace the world's values and the world's priorities. To be separate means you march to the beat of a different drummer, you follow a different script, you take your cues from God. Isolation is something else entirely. When you live in isolation from broken people, you are actually taking your cues from Satan because isolation is a demonic counterfeit of separation. In isolation, we avoid contact with unbelievers, fearful that that will compromise our faith. But when you avoid contact with unbelievers, all you compromise is the mission of Christ in the world and you end up missing the point entirely. You end up separating those who know the cure for sin from those who need to know there is a cure for sin. And you compromise your own spiritual health because when we isolate ourselves from broken people, we begin to see evil as something in them rather than something in us that requires the daily grace of God. And that exposes us to the virus of pride. And I want to remind you, That when Jesus befriended sinners, he befriended them so he could transform them and liberate them, not so that he could affirm them. Many words in our English language have lost virtually all their meaning as a result of spiritual compromise. And one of those words, like words like love and tolerance and so on, one of those words that has lost its meaning is the word friendship. Because in our culture, friendship means no matter what you're doing, I always affirm you. But that's not friendship in the sight of God. Because the Bible says faithful are the what? Wounds of a friend. A friend is somebody who will look me in the eye and say, you are dead wrong. You're sinning against God. This is not a good path for you because they care about my soul and they care about my eternal destiny. Today, friendship means it doesn't matter what a person is engaging in, we have to affirm them. Otherwise, we're victimizing them. Jesus was a friend so he could transform, not so that he can affirm. Let me tell you a story about two women who understood this principle. Two grandmothers in Houston, Texas, at the height of the AIDS epidemic in our nation. And they decided to open a house, their house, for men suffering from AIDS just to love them and tell them about Jesus. One day a guy named Ray came, and after they had loved on him and fed him, they said, Ray, we'd like to pray for you. He said, don't waste your time. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in the dude. They said, well, we believe in the dude, humorous. What can we pray for? He said, obviously, I'm emaciated. I've tried everything. I can't gain weight. Pray that I'll gain weight. They said, we'll do that. Two weeks later, Ray returned. He had gained 10 pounds. The doctor couldn't explain it. They said, Ray, you've gained weight. He says, and I know what you're going to say next, that it was the dude. But I've told you, I don't believe in the dude. And they said, well, we do, so we're going to keep praying. A couple weeks later, Ray came back. He had gained another seven pounds. But this time, his countenance looked different. They said, Ray, something else has happened to you. He said, well, I was in my apartment. I realized I've been gaining weight ever since you started praying to the dude. And so I thought, if I'm gaining weight and the doctor can't explain it, the dude must exist. At that point, I said, if the dude exists and he's doing this, he must care about me. Then I thought, well, if the dude cares about me, I should care about the dude. So he said, I stood up in the middle of my apartment and I said, dude, I don't know what you do to people, but I think you need to do it to me. And he said, everything in my life has changed. Because two women understood what it means to be a friend of sinners. The second thing God showed me is that Jesus was full of grace and truth. Say grace and truth. Now the order is important. That's why I want you to articulate it. Many times, because we're concerned about the erosion of truth in our culture, and rightfully so, we tend in our witness to lead with truth. And we subtly communicate to people, if you believe the right things, God will do great things in your life. We put belief ahead of grace. But in Jesus' interactions with people, do you notice, he most often led with grace, like the woman caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. That's grace. Go and sin no more. That's the truth, that he could change her life. And fill the void with himself rather than one man after another. Jesus understood that extended grace enables people to believe truth. That's why He led with grace and follows truth. You see, before a human being will embark on a journey to become totally new, they have to believe that it is a distinct possibility. They have to be able to imagine that their life can be transformed before they'll jump into the process. And grace enables people to have that transforming imagination when people experience grace it disarms their fears their angers their doubts and their pains that keep them at arm's length from god grace com- communicates belonging grace communicates love grace communicates community. That's why at ACAC, we reserve certain non-teaching staff and volunteer positions for peoples who aren't yet followers of Jesus, because we believe if they step in and experience grace and community, then their hearts will be open to the truth. I remember reading a story of a woman in Vancouver, Washington, came to the pastor of a church known for its alcohol recovery ministry. She walked in to the pastor's study, and he could tell immediately, She wasn't one happy with the church because she said, I I hear your church can help me recovery from my alcoholism, and I'd like to be a part of that, but I'm telling you right now, I don't want the God stuff, and if I have to take the God stuff, then I'm out of here. Now, if he had led with truth, he could have talked to her about why the God stuff was essential. But he didn't. He led with grace. He said it would be our privilege to serve you. And you know how this one's got to end. She experienced grace. She rubbed shoulders with the people of God. And her heart opened to the truth. And she became a devoted follower of Jesus. The third thing God showed me that Jesus was a servant. Say servant. Servant. He said the Son of Man didn't come to be served. I came to serve and give my life for many. In doing that, Jesus voluntarily laid aside what our culture covets. He laid aside comfort, convenience, safety, control, and privilege. He rejected that stubborn idol of individualism, the respectable idol we frequently invite into our worship services and ask God to bless and protect. Individualism is essentially an approach to life that exalts self-interest, self-concern, self-protection, and self-advancement over serving God and others. And individualism is a fabric, a part of the fabric of American culture. And when people follow an individualistic lifestyle, it reduces Jesus to the status of a bellhop, a private deity that serves our interests. And that leads us to shun the inconvenience of serving others, and it produces religious consumers rather than devoted disciples. Religious consumers bounce from church to church like they bounce from restaurant to restaurant, saying, we've got to go wherever they can offer us the most, rather than saying, God, where are you calling me so that I might serve and give my life for others? The church that looks like Jesus serves. It's people serve, and they don't come saying, what can you do for me? They come saying, what can we do for Jesus? The fourth thing God showed me was embedded in the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 11. He showed me that Jesus came to bring about justice. Say justice. Justice. Jesus described the message that he preached as the gospel of the kingdom, not the gospel of conversion. Now, before you doubt my Christian credentials, let me explain. Jesus made it very clear that unless a man or a woman is converted, they cannot enter into the kingdom of God. But conversion is not the end. It's just the door you step through into the kingdom. And Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And by that he meant once you're converted, you're stepping into a new culture where we do things differently where we march to the beat of God's drum. And in my kingdom, we're passionate about justice. Now, God had made that clear in Micah 6.8. What does the Lord want from you but to do justice? And he re-echoed that, or echoed that. That's a redundancy, re huh? He echoed that in Colossians 3.12, in very similar language in the New Testament. Now, justice always involves two things. Attacking those things that destroy life and community and adding those things that enhance community life, enhance individual life, and bring the shalom of God. At ACAC, one of the many ways we attacked injustice was by buying the local nuisance bar that was a threat to the welfare of the community so that we could shut it down. It cost us over $100,000 to shut it down. But for those who got bent out of shape over that, I said, how much did it cost Jesus to shut down your sin? People said, well, we, we didn't get all our money back. That was a bad investment. Yeah, well, has Jesus got all his investment back? See, it costs something to shut down evil. And by the way, it gave me a chance to be the only pastor in the Christian Missionary Alliance who owned a liquor license. For a brief season. (laughs) I want that on my tombstone. And then addition, when we help to add medical care and legal counsel and mental health care and Women's Choice Network and on and on and on and on, adding to the fabric of community, to help the poor and the powerless and the disadvantaged. Now, I grew up in a church that was suspicious of these kind of things because they made a false dichotomy between God's teaching about justice in the Old Testament and Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. But no dichotomy exists. I would remind you, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. God didn't go to counseling somewhere between Malachi and Matthew and work out his issues and become different. When people say, "Oh the God of the Old Testament, I like Jesus, but not the God of the Old," no, they're the same person. They're the same. And God made it clear in the Old Testament he's passionate about justice, and what did Jesus say? I didn't come to abolish what the prophets taught. I came so that what they taught can be fulfilled. That means all that justice teaching is still in play. When I understood that, I began to understand passages like Isaiah 1. Come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. I always heard that at the end of a service when the pastor was giving an altar call, inviting people to put faith in Jesus. Little did I know, when you read it in context, God was speaking to a Jewish community and He was saying, you neglect the poor, you neglect the orphan, you neglect the alien, you neglect the needy, you neglect the oppressed, your sins are like scarlet. You need to come to me, we need to have a session, and I'll make you white as snow. It was all about the people of God doing justice. See, I was taught as a boy something that's true. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as knowing Jesus. There are a lot of people who know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. And let me remind you, in the end, it is not what you know, it is who you know. Because when you stand before God, what you know will not get you in, but if you know Jesus, you're getting in. If you don't, he'll say, depart, I never knew you. So I was taught knowing Jesus is the key. But I wasn't taught what Jeremiah said in his prophecy, chapter 22, verse 16. God said, to know me is to plead the cause of the needy. People who know me plead the cause of the needy. They don't just protect their investments. They plead the cause of the needy. And then Proverbs 29 echoes that when it says, The righteous are concerned for the rights of the poor. The wicked don't understand such concern. What if that was the only benchmark by which God uh, uh, judged the validity of our faith? The righteous are concerned for the rights of the poor. So let me say, a church that looks like Jesus will be active bringing about the shalom of God in its community, and it will show up in places other churches avoid. The next thing I learned was that Jesus broke the barriers that too often divide people. He broke barriers. Say those two words or three words. He broke barriers. He repeatedly crossed ethnic barriers, political barriers, gender barriers, social barriers. He embraced all kinds of people. His vision was multi-ethnic, and he had been saying that from the beginning. God told Abraham, through your descendant Messiah, all ethnos, every people group will be blessed. The genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 included sinners, women, Gentiles, and Canaanites. When Jesus launched his ministry, he didn't launch it from Jerusalem. He launched it from Galilee of the Gentiles, a despised place. When he overturned the tables in the temple, he said, My house is to be a house of prayer for all ethnos, not just a handful of Jewish males, excluding everybody else. One of our marching order verses here is found in Psalm 133. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. But that word dwell is a word of perseverance, intentional effort, and hard work. But here's the truth. The more we reflect the diversity of our community, the better we reflect Jesus. A church sitting in a black, white, Asian, Hispanic community that's all white, all black, all Asian, all Hispanic does not reflect the community in which it is setting, and because it does not, it poorly represents Jesus. Because Jesus did not come to start a black church, a white church, a Hispanic church, an Asian church, a Democratic church, a Republican church, a Libertarian church, an apathetic church. He came to establish one church, his body. And the final thing God taught me was that Jesus relied entirely upon the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Now, that was prophesied in Isaiah 11. Powerful prophecy. Here's what it says When the Messiah comes, he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor by what his ears hear, but he'll take all his cues from the Holy Spirit. And Jesus modeled that. He didn't start His public ministry until the Spirit came upon Him at His baptism. Then He was immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. I like to remind people who think being filled with the Spirit means instant tingles, that for Jesus, the filling of the Spirit meant instant temptation and trial. Yes. Thereafter, He cast out demons by the finger of God, which was a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. He said, I only say what I'm told to say. I only do what I am told to do. And the Holy Spirit enabled him to embrace the cross, and the Holy Spirit enabled him to rise from the dead. That's all in your Bible. His entire ministry was spirit-led, spirit-initiated, spirit-directed, spirit-empowered. And as somebody has said, if Jesus didn't start to minister until he had the power of the Holy Spirit, how can we minister without the power of the Holy Spirit? If Jesus couldn't do it, how can you and I do it? A.W. Tozer, an alliance prophet and pastor, said now probably 60 years ago, Quote, if the Holy Spirit had withdrawn from the early church, 95% of their activities would have ceased. Everybody would have sensed his absence. In the modern church, if the Spirit were to withdraw, 95% of our activities would continue, and few would recognize his absence. Why? Because we have reduced the movement of the Spirit to a business enterprise. But I'd remind you only that that is birthed by the Spirit, led by the Spirit, directed by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, will accomplish the work of God. If we're going to succeed in the work of God, we won't do it by deciding what's best. We'll do it by getting in our knees and discerning what God desires. Let me close with a quote from Martin Luther King, Jr that really summarizes what I've been attempting to say. He said, people are often led to causes and often become committed to great ideas through persons who personify those ideas. They have to find the embodiment of the idea in flesh and blood in order to commit themselves to it, end quote. In other words, they need to see God's truth, not just hear God's truth. In other words, people will come when the church looks like Jesus. Not culture club, not political party at prayer, not shopping network, not entertainment tonight, not a museum but when the church looks like Jesus. This is not rocket surgery. This really is simple stuff. And yes, I mixed the metaphor intentionally. (laughs) If we will look like Jesus, they will come. Let's not look like culture. Let's look like Jesus. And let's pray. Father... Today as a congregation, we want to purpose that we want to look like Jesus. Because that's a good look. That's a timeless look. That's always relevant. And that always impacts a broken world. We're going to need a lot of help looking like Jesus. Because more often than not, we look like our own hot mess. But help us to look like Jesus a little bit more every day so that the world sees him and comes with all of its brokenness. And we pray that with a profound sense of appreciation, with humility, and with expectation. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.